Good morning. It's really good to be here with you on this sort of bright-skied morning. Uh, I wanted to be able to say blue-skied, but I'll take what I can get after January, right? So um, if we haven't met yet, my name's Blythe, and I'm really grateful to be able to be opening up the scriptures for us today. So today we're continuing in the story of Acts, which is Luke's account of the early church. The book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, where all four of the Gospels end. But as we've seen in the past few weeks, uh, the story doesn't linger there forever. It doesn't stay in Jerusalem for long. In fact, in the first few verses of Acts, while the risen Christ is still with his disciples, he gives them this promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the last thing Jesus is recorded saying to his disciples. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. I think Jesus is probably the kind of person who would choose his last words carefully, just a hunch. So I think these words matter. They might seem pretty straightforward, a basic roadmap, but upon closer inspection, I think we find that they contain fathoms. Scott actually reminded us of these words last week, and he illustrated them beautifully with a map, the likes of which I can't compete with. But I can draw two lines in Photoshop to remind you, once again, that Acts is the story of the gospel beginning small, starting with mostly one people group, the first Jewish followers of Christ's way, mostly relegated to one geographical zone, and then widening, widening in a trajectory of invitation and inclusion towards the rest of Judea and Samaria, and eventually to all who live in the ends of the earth. That verse, those last words of Jesus, Acts 1-8, is often called the very heart of Acts, or maybe for those of us who think in more linear terms, it's Acts' table of contents. See how this one verse lays out this widening trajectory, a movement that then gets mirrored in the narrative of Acts? Well, today, we find ourselves right in the middle. We're halfway through Acts 8. We're still in Samaria, right in the heart of this good and exciting unfolding. Today's passage is part two of what Scott shared last week. So let's turn to Acts 8 on page 764 of your chair Bibles. I think there's also a version of the text in your bulletins if you don't have a Bible close by. And let's take a look. Before we dive into this week's passage, I want to briefly recap what's happening here, what happened in part one. So last week we saw how the early church encountered persecution after Stephen's death and was scattered. From this scattering, we followed Philip, and specifically in verse five, we followed Philip to a city in Samaria where he proclaimed the Messiah to the Samaritan people. In verse 12, we learned that many Samaritans believed this good news of the kingdom of God and were baptized. There's even a man named Simon who had dazzled all of Samaria with his sorcery. He was used to a life of limelight, the life of a showman. And in verse 13, we see 
that even Simon himself believed and was baptized. After this, Simon follows Philip everywhere, astonished. And that's where we find ourselves today. Many Samaritans have just been baptized, and the kingdom's invitation is seemingly widening. But it's not just widening geographically. I think that's pretty important. Perhaps even more critical is who it's widening to. So let's take a look at today's passage, Acts 8, verses 14 to 25. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Let's pause right there, just one verse in. Peter and John, two of Christ's original 12 disciples, they were still in Jerusalem. They're two of the apostles who are providing leadership to the church, which up until now, remember, has been mostly bound to people with Jewish backgrounds. Okay, continuing in verse 15. When Peter and John arrived in Samaria, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's pause again. What's happening here? These people were baptized, but without the Holy Spirit. Was there something wrong with Philip's baptism? Also, did Peter and John just go to Samaria to fact check Philip's work? to make sure for themselves that the Samaritans were genuine in their belief? Upon first read, this strikes me as considerably odd, and to be honest, maybe even a bit presumptuous. Also, when Peter and John arrive in Samaria, how on earth do they know that the Samaritans haven't received the Holy Spirit? There's so much unsaid here. I so wish I could have been a fly on the wall for this encounter, seeing all those missing bits in real time. But Luke doesn't seem interested in telling us how the believers knew they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. That doesn't seem to be the point here. So, what then is the point? You might know that historically, Jews and, or Jews and Samaritans had a painful relationship one of deep conflict and animosity. Think about someone you find really easy to judge, someone, someone you think you have figured out, someone, if you're honest, maybe you even think you're a little bit better than. It doesn't feel good physiologically to think about this, but now throw on top of that feeling all the pain of cultural and political tension, and I think, broadly speaking, that's the general regard these groups had for each other. At this point in Acts, the hostility between Jews and Samaritan, Samaritans went back about a thousand years. Okay, now during my sermon prep, I did eventually figure out how to do maps in Photoshop. Um, my arrows aren't as fancy as Scott's were last week, but nonetheless, they will do. So here is a little crash course in Israel's history for us, just to try and show how deeply entrenched this conflict is. Israel was a divided nation for many years. You might know this. They had a divided monarchy split between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the north, while Jerusalem was the capital down south. 
Eventually, both kingdoms were invaded by two big political superpowers. Assyria invades the northern kingdom, conquering Samaria, and over a hundred years later, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom, capturing Jerusalem. Many Jewish people were taken away from their land during this time, and it marks a period of exile for all Israelites. After many years, Jews from the southern kingdom were allowed to return home. And when they do, they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem slowly establishes itself as the Jewish cultural and religious hub. Some Samaritans resist this rebuilding. And Samaria never really gets to be restored in this way. The conquered people there become increasingly distanced and disconnected from their wider Jewish peers, and eventually they form their own cultural identity. At this point, they adjust. Some marry people from other backgrounds, maybe even marry their invaders, and future generations lean into this new emerging identity, which is partially Jewish, absolutely, but also not entirely. So to the Jews who'd had the good fortune of keeping their cultural identity intact, albeit amidst great suffering, Samaria represented a schism, maybe even a heresy. And Samaritans were looked down on, deemed lesser. So for centuries, tensions grew more and more entrenched between these two groups. Like our current world's most fractured relationships, it's really hard to actually pinpoint one precise origin for this conflict. For different people, the pain is going to start at different times along this fairly reductive timeline. But one thing's clear. Years of hostility built up, and the division became deeply entrenched in the imaginations of both people groups in how they imagined each other, how they imagined the other. Jews do not associate with Samaritans, a Samaritan woman says to Jesus in John 4. This week, as I was trying to think through some of this stuff, I came across uh, an old episode of the podcast, The Sacred. It's a great podcast, I really recommend it, hosted by Elizabeth Oldfield, a woman whose thinking and writing I really recommend as well. I really recommend this particular episode. In it, Elizabeth interviews Padraig Otuama. I know many of you know and like his work. He's been quoted here before a few times, and maybe some of you even went to hear him speak at St. Margaret's last fall. Padraig is an Irish poet and theologian whose work in peacemaking and conflict resolution um, is, is pretty inspirational. And in this interview, Elizabeth and Padraig discuss the idea that sectarianism is belonging gone wrong. If, like me, you need to Google dictionary the word sectarianism every time you come across it, just to double check its definition, um, I can save you some time. It's just a fancy word for groups of people, some might say sects, groups that are highly attached to each other, highly attached to the group, and sometimes in a way that might remove them from real relationship with people who are different who are other than them. So while discussing this quote with Elizabeth, Padraig offers this great gem of insight, saying that, well, belonging is the first word there. We all wish to belong. But it's the recognition to be slightly wary of some forms of belonging, to ask, are there barbed wires at the edges of my form of belonging? 
such a good question. How do we belong in a way that's fenced off? It's a good question for any church. How do we belong to each other in a way that's harmful for our relationships with others? Whether our physical neighbors here in Strathcona, or newcomers through our doors, or other religions, or Christians who are more or less whatever than us, insert difference here. And I think this is actually a really helpful lens, a framework through which we can view the relationship between Samaritans and Jews, two people groups who hold their own stories and experiences of hurt quite close, two groups who each have their own deep core values, some of which are going to intersect with each other's, but others of which critically diverge. Two groups who've developed barbed wires at the edges of their forms of belonging, certainly in the direction of each other. As we saw, John is one of the two apostles sent to Samaria. The author of Acts, Luke, he wrote one other book in the Bible, helpfully named the Gospel According to Luke. So would you quickly turn there with me? I want us to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 55, which you'll find on page 724 of your chair Bibles. I'll just give, a sec- uh, give us a second to turn there. Okay, starting in verse 51 of chapter 9, Luke writes, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so not that long ago, John wanted to physically destroy the Samaritans. Sure, him and James are probably feeling lots of things here. Uh, Maybe their core value of hospitality feels attacked and, and they react, probably calling to mind, whether consciously or not, all the years of Samaritan Jewish conflict that has deeply shaped them. But here, John exhibits some of that Elijah-like anger that we saw in Peter's disposition towards Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Do you remember that? Thankfully, though, Jesus rebukes this desire. No, guys, that's not our way. There are so many hints like this throughout the Gospels that Jesus is slowly, gently transforming his disciples' prejudice towards Samaritans. Many of these hints occur in passages that, if you've been around church for a while, might feel well-known to you. Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well, his parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus healing a Samaritan in Luke 17 and then affirming that same Samaritan's faith, and this, the rebuke that we just read in Luke 9. I like to think of these moments as little winks from Jesus as he interacts with people outside of his tribe, waiting for his followers to catch up. This tells us something good about who God is. So let's return to Acts 8. I believe that was page 764, 
if you need to flip back quickly, something like that. So, back in Acts 8, when Peter and John arrive from Jerusalem in Acts 8.15, they somehow know something is different. The Spirit hasn't poured out the Spirit's self to the Samaritans in the way that we're used to seeing in Acts when people have these momentous arrivals at faith. So they see this, they sense this somehow, and they pray. And then the Spirit descends. Acts 8, 17. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they, the Samaritans, received the Holy Spirit. We know that the Spirit has probably still been at work in Samaria prior to this arrival. We read of healings last week and a baptism. The Spirit was working. The Spirit had to have been present. But while we don't get the details, this arrival, this receiving, seems a bit different, a bit special. Maybe a bit more like Pentecost, where the Spirit descends on people like tongues of fire in Acts 2 and dwells in them from that time forth. And that's because this moment is special. Many people call this the Samaritan Pentecost. Some traditions will read this text prescriptively, suggesting that all conversion, all arrival at faith, requires two stages, just like the Samaritans experienced. But I think that actually this is a very unique circumstance. I think this scene describes a special, dramatic unfolding. The Spirit's delayed arrival here its delay is an intentional sign for the sake of highlighting how critical and how desperately needed this moment was for the life of the early church. Here, Peter and John have to place their hands on old enemies. They have to extend themselves to the Samaritans. And probably even harder, the Samaritans have to receive that. God seems to withhold the Spirit so that these apostles will go to Samaria so that old enemies can pray together and so the apostles can participate in the early church's widening trajectory of invitation. God's inclusion to a people that they so easily wrote off, a people they assessed in really damaging ways. This scene physically and spiritually ties the Samaritan believers into the rest of the church. So the delay in the Spirit's arrival here, then, is for the sake of unity across old spheres of division, marking a special moment in the widening gospel. It exists for the sake of reinforcing how wide God's love is, a love that's certainly wider than John ever imagined when he was wishing to call down fire from heaven. So maybe the real reason then for the apostles' presence here isn't actually to fact-check the scene. It's not to assess the faith of new believers, but rather to witness God's wide love for all people in a way that transforms them and transforms the whole culture of the early church. And from this, maybe deep wounds start to heal. So let's continue in the passage. Let's see what happens here after this receiving of the Spirit. Remember Simon? He was baptized, in, uh, he was baptized by Philip in last week's passage. Let's see what's going on for him in all this, starting in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability 
so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Yikes. My honest reaction to this scene is poor Simon. Commentaries can be really harsh on him. Yes, it's so misguided that he thinks he can buy the spirit, but I also find it very ironic that when approaching a passage that otherwise exemplifies God's wide love for the people we deem other, the people we dehumanize, most commentaries tend to paint Simon as this kind of caricature, a, a bit of an irredeemable sinner or a moral warning to us, maybe forgetting that he was actually a real human in the process and probably a complicated one. To be sure, there's something very troubling about Simon's desire. Jesus teaches that the spirit is like a wind that blows where it will, not someone who can be coerced or purchased. And if this chapter has shown us anything so far, thank goodness for that. Thank goodness that the spirit is the one leading us, going before us to pave the way and not vice versa. Otherwise, a lot of people might die in fires from heaven. We don't actually get a lot of insight into Simon's underlying motivation, though Peter does suggest that his heart is corrupt, which it very well may be. Simon definitely wants to buy the trade secret here, maybe even wants to commodify the phenomenon he just witnessed. Remember, he's used to a life of limelight and performance. He's, he's used to a life in which he got to amaze the crowds. Maybe he wanted some of that back. Or maybe it was something different. That's the thing we don't really know. What we do know is that Simon worked in sorcery. And it was very common in Near Eastern sorcery to exchange money for tricks of the trade with others in your line of work. So then, with that in mind, here, Simon is just using the logic of his old social world, trying to apply it to the kingdom. But that logic doesn't hold up here. The spirit can't be bought and can't be coerced, and especially not to, er to nurse our hungry egos. But lest we judge Simon too harshly, I think it's really helpful to remember that we too project the false logic of our social worlds onto our faith lives all the time. When I was a kid, I was deeply shaped by the social economy of trading toys. Certain toys held clout. For example, my man bat figurine, the epitome of cool toys, obviously. One day I gave my man bat to my good, good friend Brendan. That's a funny sentence to say. I gave my man bat to Brendan because I desperately wanted Brendan's approval. I wanted to know he really liked me. I wanted to know where we stood. And Brendan gave me his toy archery kit. After this, obviously I knew we were best friends. This was how we navigated our friendship. It's how we knew where we stood with each other. 
I became a Christian when I was young, probably around nine or ten years old, and I first heard about Jesus at a tiny Anglican camp where God became very real to me in this place that I would return to each summer. This next photo is about what I looked like when I first went to camp. I think I'm eight or nine years old in this picture, and I'm holding my favorite toy, the most precious thing I owned. Honestly, it feels a bit reductive to call this a toy because this was Bob, Bob the rabbit. Bob came to me before I was born. This is my mom, eight months pregnant in the, in the 80s, unwrapping Bob at Christmas. I was born a month later and Bob was waiting for me when my parents took me home from the hospital. I read to Bob. I took him on every holiday. I made my friends do photo shoots with Bob. I loved Bob. He was probably my best friend. I have this very vivid memory from this period of my childhood. One night, I remember thinking, I need to give Bob to God. Physically, not like figuratively lay Bob at the cross, but like actually let God take Bob to heaven so that God could physically own and enjoy Bob just like Brendan owned and enjoyed my man bat. I wanted to seal my friendship with God, and this was just the way I knew to do it. I can still picture it. I was in my loft bed, and I placed Bob like an offering on the top shelf that grazed the edge of my mattress. I shut my eyes tight and leaned against my green walls, and I prayed, and I remember being so sure that when I opened my eyes, Bob would be gone. Shockingly, God was not that interested in my most earnest offering. And thank goodness, because, I mean, obviously I would have grieved a life without Bob. But like Simon, albeit in significantly cuter ways, I was just working with what I knew. Like Simon, I was new to God's ways. And I was just using the logic of my tiny social world, thinking, well, that must be how things work with God too, right? My story is obviously innocent, but it looks a lot less innocent on a woman in her 30s. And I still do this, albeit in much worse ways. I use the damaging logic of my social world to assess myself and others all the time, and I don't always stop and think about how the logic of my social world might not hold up in God's kingdom. For example, I often heed the logic of my inner critic more than the logic of God's wide love. I assume that if I perform really well in school, or if I'm honest, maybe even in sermons, that then I have value. That people might like me, might really like me. That if I maintain a certain image, then I'm in. It's this attempt to manage a deep need for belonging instead of letting God's wide love wash over me and transform the way that I belong in his world. Whenever I share about this kind of stuff in spiritual direction, in the past, the question posed in response has usually been, well, what, what is God like to you in that? What's his, what's his disposition towards you? What, what's his attitude to you? And almost every time, I slowly realize it's one of wide accepting love. Why do I keep forgetting that? 
The story that we're in today gives a big clue as to God's disposition towards us, towards his world. Remember how Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of the Samaritans? Well, other English translations write that the Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. That's the ESV, yeah, right up there, had not yet fallen upon. Bruce Milne points out that the Greek word here is epipeptokos. It means to fall upon, to come over, to light upon. But its root word is even more revealing. It's from the root epipipto, which means to embrace with affection or aggressively seize, which, side note, this is also the definition of a Julia Kochuk hug, if you've ever had the pleasure, that aggressive seize. But epipipto, Luke uses the same root elsewhere. He uses it in his gospel, in the parable of the prodigal son. Do you know that story? It's a parable Jesus tells where a father and son lose touch quite painfully. One day the son returns home and the father is so delighted that he loses all sense of propriety, as you can imagine. He, he runs and he throws his arms wide around his son, embracing his beloved child with wild abandon. Luke writes, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. We almost miss it in the English, but where it says that the father threw his arms around his son, the Greek literally says more or less that the father fell upon the neck of him. It's an awkward literal translation. I don't generally hug people by falling on their necks. I doubt you do either. But I want us to notice the shared word here, fell upon. The shared word with the descending spirit in the ESV translation of Acts 8. In Greek, here, the father epipepsin upon the neck of his son. And again, that root word is epipipto, that big embrace. Henry Nouwen has a beautiful book on this parable, on the parable of the prodigal son. And in it, he writes that God is always looking for me with these outstretched arms to receive me back and whisper again into my ear, you are my beloved. Now one goes on to say that once we find we belong in these outstretched arms, we're to become like the Father, extending that welcome to others. Here, the Father's embrace sheds light on God's disposition to the early church, to Jew and Samaritan alike. When the Spirit does fall on the Samaritans, I now imagine this parable, God running with abandon towards the ones he loves, throwing his outstretched arms around them. But he's not just embracing the Samaritans. He leaves room for the apostles from Jerusalem too, saying, saying get in here, this is for you too. And I imagine the kind of embrace required to dissolve all the entrenched conflict here. And I imagine Jesus rejoicing that his, his instructive little winks all those times he treated his disciples' enemies with dignity, that they were finally bearing fruit in the life of his followers. As Bruce Milne says, this is a critical moment of boundary breaking. God sets his divine seal by this extra all-over embrace and a Holy Spirit outpouring. 
What if we viewed the people who we find so easy to judge, those we hold prejudice towards or deem too other, or those we feel have wronged us somehow? What if we viewed them through this lens, one of God's outstretched arms going before us to greet them? Then maybe God turning around saying to us, you too, this is for you too, get in here. Would that transform our more difficult relationships? And on a systemic level, what might this vision of who God is say about how God is involved with, with more uh, systemic fractured relationships? What might this tell us about what God's longing is for those areas of conflict in our world? Or maybe if the person that you find easiest to judge is actually just you, well, does this picture change how you view your own self? I wish we got to see what happened to Simon. Most ACT scholars aren't optimistic, but I sure hope Peter did pray for him. I hope Simon's heart changed. But mostly, I hope Simon got to see that the Spirit's power is rooted in God's embrace towards him, towards his peers, and to have that awareness be more compelling than any desire for razzle-dazzle or any grip that money might still have on him. I hope that slowly Simon learned to replace the logic of his old life with the logic of the kingdom, which is primarily, at its heart, a logic of wide, transformative love. It seems like Peter and John, it seems like they get this. It seems like John has been changed, whether his attitude transformed before or after this encounter, we don't know. What we do know is verse 25. After Peter and John had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. They went back home, but I think they went back changed, extending Christ to former enemies on their return, living more into this new, wider existence, a new, broader reality for the church that they love. Friends, God's disposition to these early followers, one of wild love, one of wide embrace, and one of countercultural welcome, that's his disposition to us today as well. It's a love that's always wider and always deeper than we think. Too often, I live more out of the false logic of my social world, the one where my worth is rooted in performance, rooted in being liked, rooted in assessment then I do live out of this all-encompassing truth. It's very easy to forget that this embrace is God's main disposition towards me, towards us, and towards the people that we so easily dehumanize as other than us. God's attitude towards every square inch of this world. What a good vision of where we belong if you're struggling to live into this vision, if you're struggling to, to feel this vision as reality for your life, whether it's in your relationship with yourself or your relationship with others, there will be people here to pray with you during communion, just over to the right of me. Otherwise, as we come to the table today, I want us to imagine God's big, wide, outstretched arms embracing all of us collectively, and those beyond these walls too. 
And as we imagine this, let's remember that God's love for, the, for others, for ourselves, it's always wider than we think. And that the trajectory is still moving, will still be moving, until all the ends of the earth find that they too belong in the Spirit's embrace.